0: Hi and welcome to Spotlight on France. This is Sarah. Allison is out this week, but she did leave us with a report from a village in central France where one of the town councilors is British. He talks about the role of local government in France, which includes defense, it turns out. This guy in particular is tasked with protecting the village, among other things. And representation is kind of the theme this week. There's also an interview about how France's governing system is focused on a strong president. One explanation for the protest movements with people wanting more say, and we go to the movies. But before we do that, we of course have to talk about Notre Dame. If you've been following the news—I mean, any news, not just France—you'll know, of course, that the roof of the cathedral in the center of Paris burnt down on Monday night.
1: La de de Paris. A, a major fire has broken out. <inaudible> 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 the structure of, this of the, the <inaudible> Notre Dame
0: uh, will uh, be saved. That, of course, doesn't include the spire. That, that spire, seen. built in the 19th century, collapsed. The The roof is gone, but the stones held the structure appears to be solid. After, of course, the immediate shock came talk of rebuilding. The president, Emmanuel Macron, called for unity in the reconstruction. But if he wanted to avoid political cleavages, this was not going to be. Pledges of money started coming in from all over the world, and some of France's biggest companies opened their pocketbooks. Hundred million here, two hundred million there, putting starkly into contrast the haves and the have-nots. For the yellow vest protesters, in particular, and now the conversations over what that spire will actually look like—the reconstruction—reveals very different visions of the world. The government is clearly looking for the
2: future. Prime Minister
0: Edouard Philippe called for an uh, international uh, competition uh, to the rebuild uh, the spire that would consider a modern version. This, along with the president's call for the rebuilding to be completed within five years shows a definitive push for the new. From the opposition, this coming mostly from the right, there are calls for rebuilding the spire exactly as it was, the 19th century version by Violette Le Duc. Marine Le Pen of the national rally even coined a hashtag, touche pas Notre Dame, don't touch Notre Dame. It seems that arguing over architecture may well replace other perhaps nuanced issues like Europe or income inequality in France. <laughs> So the reconstruction of Notre Dame. Michael, you keep an eye on the French press for us, for those who don't necessarily understand French or follow the French media. What caught your eye this week?
3: Well, it's a side issue, obviously, against the drama of the destruction of this monument uh, in uh, the center of Paris. That's given a boost to Victor Hugo and the people who publish his book, Notre Dame de Paris, which in English is translated as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So
0: people rushed out to buy the book.
3: Apparently they did. It's top of the Amazon bestseller list at the moment. We've seen this before. It happened in uh, November 2015 with uh, Ernest Hemingway's Moveable Feast, which was bought in hundreds of thousands of copies after the Bataclan attack. Really? So this is something that French people, French tend people to do. French people,
0: during a disaster, they go out and buy, and buy books. Buy
3: books, exactly. Interesting. <laughs> yeah.
0: So what's going to happen with all these books? Do they exist? I imagine uh, they're going to have to republish these books uh, or Fol- reprint them.
3: Folio have had to reprint uh, 30,000 new copies and they're selling them at half price, uh, €5.60, and they've promised to give the entire profits to the National Rebuilding Fund. The book was first published in 1831 at a stage when the cathedral was actually in a pretty bad state Victor Hugo was credited at the time with creating that wave of public enthusiasm which led to a sort of general refurbishment of the cathedral. So, perhaps Victor Hugo can work the miracle a second time.
0: What is old is new again. Um, what else is going on besides Notre Dame? Of course, this dominated the headlines, but other things were happening in France as well.
3: Would you believe there was a national debate? But that We've was heard a week. about this. <laughs> that was, this is a different national debate. This one opened this week, and it's on the National Plan for the Management of Radioactive Waste. Ooh,
0: that sounds very serious.
3: It is serious. France produces an A awful lot of its electricity, about 60% by using nuclear power stations. And unfortunately, nuclear power stations leave a lot of leftovers. Those leftovers are very dangerous now because they're radioactive. And they're going to be very dangerous for generations to come. So
0: what are we supposed to do about them?
3: There is a project in a town called Bure, which is in west central France, and they're drilling a hole there, which they hope will go 500 metres down. They're going to then put in side galleries, and they hope to stock the radioactive material. And uh, there's been an opinion piece in Liberation this week by a nuclear scientist, and he says, don't bury it. If something goes wrong, if something happens, if some one of those containers starts to leak into the groundwater, there's nothing we can do to retrieve the situation.
0: So, what are the other options?
3: Uh, in the United States, it is stocked in hangars at or, or slightly below ground level in sealed containers. And the Americans are hoping that technology will eventually find some way of neutralizing this stuff.
0: So there's this techno hope, I guess, going on, but interesting that this, as you said, is a debate. Now it's being put to a public debate in France. It seems like this is the realm of scientists, of engineers. Why why would any of us have a say in this?
3: Perhaps because the time scale involved is so vast. The government doesn't want to have a technocratic decision imposed on future generations. They're hoping that by making it an open open debate, some good ideas may actually be brought to the table.
0: Thanks there to Michael Fitzpatrick. What do French politicians do when they have a point to make? Well, they often write books. In the case of François Ruffin, he makes movies. He's an MP with the hard-left France Unbowed Movement and has made it his mission to oppose Macron. He's released a film this month about the yellow vests, Ruffin's originally a journalist, an activist journalist. He made his name a couple of years ago with a film called Merci Patron, Thank You Boss, where he took on the head of LVMH, Bernard Arnault. That film, by the way, won the César for Best Documentary in 2017. That's France's Academy Award. The new film called Je veux du soleil, I want sunshine, fashions itself as a documentary as well. So this is the teaser, and in it, there are clips with people in yellow vests intercut with Macron talking about them as extremists. Ruffin, his co-producer, drove all around France for several days in December of last year and met yellow vest protesters at roundabouts to, as he put it, find out if they really were extremists that they were being painted out to be. The film's done pretty well at the box office, and I decided to go see it with Roslyn Hyams, our resident film critic. Afterwards, we sat down in a cafe to talk about it. As a movie, what
1: do you think? Well, it's it's a documentary for a start, so we don't have the same kind of conflict we would have in a regular feature movie. However, there is this sense of conflict right from the beginning um, that has to do with the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests.
0: This conflict, he sets it up really with clips from politicians and from mainstream news, very fast-paced clips, and then he goes and like talks to these gilets jaunes on
1: the roundabouts. It's quite interesting the way it, he takes us actually to meet these people who People see on TV and they see the demonstrations and they see a lot of violence, but these are people talking about their lives. And I think he does it in quite a good way, although because basically it's very repetitive. Yeah,
0: He, he meets some um, outside at a roundabout or on the highway and then some of them he follows home and they sit down for a cup of coffee and they talk about their lives.
1: Yeah, he shows the contrast between what they're doing outside and what they're doing inside. It's interesting though that this movie has its qualities as a film or not, but it's also
0: A political document. François Ruffin is an MP and you see him in this film so it's not really a documentary when you, especially as you continue along
1: towards the end. At the end where he's talking as if he were president you do have to ask yourself this question and he is an MP today so his position has changed uh, from the position he was in when he made Merci Patron, Thank You Boss. Merci Patron of course is. It's a film that that sparked off this movement called Nuit Debout, which got people
0: spending all night outside debating democratic issues, and you kind of wonder what
1: he's trying to get at here with this film. It's a two-way thing. I think on one hand it gives support to the gilets jaunes, to the yellow vest, and on the other hand it, it raises François Ruffin's image as this great guy who goes out and chats with all these people. So I think it is being used as a political tool. Um, but I think at least the people who are watching it in the cinema will be aware of that.
0: Politicians and activists use media all the time. They write books. Bufa is, is quite an avid media producer. He has a, a weekly YouTube chat from
1: his kitchen table. But let's remember film as a media in cinemas since it's existed, more or less, has been used and horribly exploited sometimes as a propaganda tool. So, in a way, he's not doing anything different from that. I'm not saying you know it's good or bad thing necessarily, but yes, he's making the most of all these different channels, all these different media, to further his case. This is not a film that is fair to Macron. That
0: was Roslyn Hyams talking to me about the film Cheveux du Soleil. And now for our regular rendezvous with history. Today is a centenary. The French Parliament passed the eight-hour workday on April 17th, 1919. An eight-hour workday was something workers around the world had been fighting for since the late 1800s. But it gained no traction in France, even after massive May Day demonstrations in 1906. And after the First World War, there was even more of a push to work more, not less. At the time, work was limited to 72 hours a week in factories where only men were working, 60 hours a week when women and children were working there as well. But the issue became pressing as the Bolsheviks were taking power in Russia, and unions in France were making noise. The law was seen as a way of placating the revolutionary tendencies in France, so it was passed quickly, in two weeks. The government introduced legislation on April 8th, it passed Parliament on the 17th, and the Senate approved it unanimously on April 23rd, 1919. The next step was negotiating a 40-hour workweek down from 48 hours in 1936 and of course the famous 35-hour workweek we have now which became the rule in 2002. This week, we were supposed to get news about reforms, tax reforms, institutional reforms based on the results of the great national debate that was launched in December after the first few rounds of protests of the yellow vest, the gilets jaunes. The government said it wanted to get French people's input on the issues being raised by the protests. They set up online surveys, organized hundreds of local meetings around the country. The prime minister presented a summary last week. That's when he said the message that came out of the weeks of debate was lower taxes. On Monday, we were supposed to hear from Macron, who is going to tell us specifically what would change in France. But of course, Notre Dame caught on fire, and that was shelved. I'd wanted to talk with Vincent Martini about those proposals. He's a political scientist who focuses on democracy in France, representation, what it means. He's just published a book called Le Retour du Prince, The Return of the Prince, where he argues that France and other democracies have put their faith into strong presidents or princes. For him, that's problematic. Even though we don't have the specifics of the reforms coming out of the great debate, the question of democracy is still important. I want to start this conversation with the grand debate, the great national debate. Was this a unique experience in France? And a necessary one?
4: It's not the first time. Let's remember that in 2008, 2009, there's been a debate about national identity that was launched at the time by Nicolas Sarkozy. So that's not the first time, even though uh, in terms of size, probably it was unprecedented. At the same time, many people will say that this great debate was rather the end of the debate that had been opened by the crisis of the Yellow Vest than the opening of a new debate.
0: Did you take part in the debate yourself?
4: No, I've thought it was not my place as a political scientist to do to do so.
0: But the idea then of this, you know, opening or, as you said, concluding a debate that was already opened by the Yellow vest, The question in all this, I think, in France right now is people feeling like they don't have a say in their government. They don't have a say in who, who's making the decisions. The Yellow Vests are taking the streets, the government that says, here's a forum for you. Where is the legitimacy? Where, do, where are people finding ways to express themselves today in France?
4: One is clear is that France, like many European democracies and also probably in Northern America, is in a time of crisis of representative democracy. Uh, now many people want to have a say, but uh, there's a confusion between participating in a debate and participating in power. And I think what the great debate does not resolve is that this demand for participation goes along a demand of sharing of power.
0: So they're talking about the RIC, the Referendum d'Initiative Citoyenne, the the citizen referendum initiatives that people are basically wanting to propose laws themselves. Is this something that France could handle if if it's accepted?
4: Well, it could handle. I mean, also, let's remember that in Germany, at all local regional levels have some sort of initiative like like the the RIC or, or some equivalent. Some of them even question the legitimacy of elected members of local parliaments, and you can dismiss them by referendum.
0: But but in France, we don't have any of that.
4: No, we don't have any of that, because it's not, once again, in a political tradition. So what is at stake right now is the possibility to integrate uh, new forms of democracy that will allow for a larger part of the population to participate. And, and I think probably that, that Mr. Macron is going to propose that.
0: You've written a book called The Return of the Prince, and is talking about this idea of presidents taking control. And one of the issues is representation in the level of MPs and in Parliament. If Parliament was working better, would we have these calls for a RIC and that kind of thing?
4: I think uh, the answer is always mixed. Uh, it's not only the comeback of the parliament, which would be the comeback of the situation of France at the end of the 19th century with a strong parliament and a suspicion towards strong leaders, because in France, strong leaders many times in history meant dictators and emperors and kings. So uh, there's also a suspicion. It's very ambivalent in France, this relation to the prince. And it's a reason why also Mr. Macron is very criticized right now.
0: I mean, they call him Jupiter, right?
4: He, he calls himself, or some of his advisors called him Jupiter. Or, and, and the way he says, he talks about my country, my people, uh, Make that there's a suspicion about his conception of democracy.
0: Is it about him as a person or is it about him as an institution? I mean, where is the problem here?
4: I think it's both, really. The constitution of the fifth republic gives a lot of power to the president. Uh, a power that is probably without any comparison, any democracy, because counterpowers are very weak in France. So the problem is about the president and its powers, but also about Mr Macron himself, who is the incarnation of the uh, situation and then of the problem of the fifth republic, even though he didn't invent it. We are in a new cycle of democracy in which the power of the president has never been so strong, but at the same time, his legitimacy has never been so fragile.
0: France has so many layers of representation. We have the president, there's the parliament, but then we have 36,000 mayors in France, we have departments, we have regions, we have municipal councillors, we have regional councillors. Can't people find their representation somewhere amongst all these people?
4: That's very difficult. When you ask people who are they trusting, they trust their mayors, and then at a very lower level they trust their uh, members of parliament or or the the head of the regional council, which is a a local government, and then a lot less the prime minister and the president.
0: Which makes a certain amount of sense, that the farther you are from power, the power centers then the less connection you have with it but should it be that way i mean should french people have a a feel directly represented by their president or by their elected officials
4: as a matter of fact if you take a look uh, at electoral turnout at every presidential election. You can see that the electoral turnout is very high in France for the presidential election. About 80% of the population takes part in the vote every five years, so that makes it one of the most legitimate elections. But at the same time, there's the key of our problem. The problem is not the fact that many people participate. They participate because they understand that this man has a lot of power. At least they want to have a say about it. Does it mean that they agree with the fact that this man has so many powers? It's another question.
0: So what do you do about it? I mean, as a political scientist, somebody has observed this. Do we have solutions?
4: I think the institutional problem is key. I mean, as long as you will have a presidential election giving so much power to one man, it seems to me quite immature as a democratic move.
0: So so this is, you know, then saying maybe we need a sixth republic and a revision of our institutions.
4: Clearly, I think that we need a change in French democracy. I'm not saying that we should give away classical democracy. I think we should mix it with probably more participative uh, democracy. In the long term, I see a lot of hope when I see that there are new social movements, more regular in France, some of them indeed are violent, and that's not a good thing, but I also see a lot of hope when I see young people march every Friday for climate, and that they start to believe in political terms that are collective and not individuals. Then the fact that in a society like France, which is very politicized, more and more people, and especially around the young generations, are raising this question, for me is a, is a sign of hope for sure.
0: Vincent Martini, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well,
4: thank you for asking me.
0: As we were discussing with Vincent Martini, when asked which politicians they trust the most, French people tend to cite their mayors. France has a complex system of local government. It dates back to the French Revolution of 1789. The revolutionary government created communes, and today France has exactly 34,968 of them, each with a town council, an elected representative led by a mayor and a deputy mayor. And a commune can be huge, like Paris, or a village with just a handful of residents. Communes have power, they can raise local taxes, they manage primary schools, they manage transport and sports facilities. Interestingly, any EU citizen is eligible to be a town councillor in France, which is how we got to this story. Alison went to the village of saint outry in the middle of France to meet a British town councillor. He's taken on Irish nationality anticipating Brexit in order to continue his representative duties.
2: Thing that a mary can do local councillor
0: donna o'brien is
5: taking me around the village of saint-outry population
2: 215. Bonjour. in the
5: newly renovated village hall we bump into an electrician checking the heating it can get very hot with a crowd partying or whatever he says
2: especially with the red wine
5: flowing quips o'brien clearly at ease in french and in his role as a local. A the 63-year-old British-born scientist moved here permanently with his wife, Tessa, nearly 20 years ago. They live in a large converted farmhouse three kilometers outside the village. Five years ago, the local mayor knocked on his door and invited O'Brien to stand for election.
2: The turnout was about 60% and I did actually get the most, which was very embarrassing. But I think it was partly because they didn't know who I was and they knew all the others and I didn't want them.
5: Yeah, the shock of the new.
2: <laughs> yes, possibly. They wanted somebody they felt that could bring a different point of view as well, sort of somebody from the outside. Uh, I think they were interested. I worked in the health business, so, you know, that that's a big issue around here.
5: Because of the elderly population.
2: The elderly population and the fact that we're faced with this, what they call the désert médical, which is the... The GPs are all retiring and then we're not replacing them and the hospitals are further and further away because the little ones are closing down. So, you know, it's becoming a a big issue. You know, I'm not going to have to have little sort of tiny offices where people can go and consult via the web. We can have sort of prescriptions delivered in in the local pharmacy based on some telemedicine approach. I, I think that's the only way it's going to work, frankly.
5: And you know a lot about that.
2: Well, I don't really, but I I know a little bit more about it than anybody else around here.
5: O'Brien's computer skills are a bonus for the community, but like the other seven councillors, he also has specific roles as a delegate, such as the electricity and gas distribution system. He's also delegate for defence.
2: This is my office. So um, this is where I work... uh,
5: Do you get emails regularly then from the Ministry of Defence?
2: Yes. The last one, let me see. This is about the army. L'Armée de de Terre is recruiting. And so there was a a meeting that we went to to discuss how you could encourage young people from the commune to sign up. But um, since most of our population (laughs) are really elderly, I don't think many of them would be parachutists or... uh, (laughs) Fighting in the front line in Mali.
5: <laughs> the village's crown jewel is an 11th century church from the Romaine period. Its quirky twisted spire attracts tourists from all over the world, but the old lady is in need of repair.
2: I shall show you the crack. It's a lot. You can see just above this arch here is Oh, yes. Big crack. It is crack, and that needs some major work, and that's going to cost 100,000 euros just to fix that.
5: We walk past the mairie, or town hall, a tiny building. O'Brien calls it a toy town mairie. You can only fit about five people in it.
2: Uh, This is our mairie, the town hall. Um, And we have a secretary who works here in the mornings, it's closed right now, but she works uh, every morning, during the week and deals with all the administrative stuff, which is pretty heavy duty, so uh, that's great that we've got her.
5: While councillors like O'Brien are volunteers, the secretary mayor and deputy mayor are paid small salaries, around 600 euros for the mayor. But he admits running such an infrastructure could be seen as a luxury when successive governments are desperate to cut costs and streamline
2: administration. You know, the infrastructure is very, very expensive. And um, obviously they're going to close these little ones down and centralize, so I think that's inevitable. So, you know, we're kind of keen that that our voices are heard and that, that somebody passes through here and we don't just get ignored when decisions are made about who gets what money and <laughs> what resources so it's it's important to us to, to keep fighting our our cause really uh, particularly with the all these communes spread out so much so, you know you could be a long way away from the center of decision-making hours of driving in some cases so it's important that these outposts stay on. But I think as a full-blown independent Mary, it's a luxury that we're going to have to abandon.
0: That was Donna O'Brien, councillor of the village of Saint-Outrie. And that brings us to the end of Spotlight on France this week. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our program this week was mixed by Elvan Rome and Cécile Pompeiani. Thanks for listening.